by academic training anyway, apart from the seminary. Uh, my field is in cultural anthropology. Uh, I always smile when I say that because in a certain sense, anthropology has been a great enemy of missions in its relativism and at the same time, it's a great friend for missions in that what it has to offer us in terms of understanding the people with whom we work. I want to take just a brief view this morning and look at some of the issues that we talk about and why won't they listen to us. After all, we've prepared, gone to school, got all that education, and here we are. And one of the most frustrating things I found to missionaries, as it was to my wife and me sometimes, is they simply won't listen to us. So let's see if we can figure out why they won't listen. Most of it deals, I think, with what we call assumptions and values, and that's because they are different from us. And differences certainly create conflicts and create all kinds of misunderstandings. with the birth of Jesus Christ. I think many of us have so many questions to ask, but I think uh, we have few, few people to answer them. Everything is different. Everything is different. It's kind of irritating because even when you're from Africa, they say, oh, are you from Africa? Yes. Some people will say, like, do you live in the forest? Nobody is born in the forest. You can't live in the forest. You should live in a house. <laughs> in the United States, people are not friendly. You can find somebody working in the street by himself, you know, don't even talk, you know. You cannot go to the house of somebody who you don't know. They are all Americans. You call the police, why this guy come to my house? And I don't know him. But in Sudan, they can ask you, have you got lost? Are you new to this place? They can ask you. You say, I'm new to this place, they can show you where you are. You can even talk with them. It is important to ask them, how do people work in this area? How do people feel when you ask somebody, now can you show me a way? How do we feel, you know? That's different, you cannot even ask him because these are different people. That's a very deep color, I don't know. I'm going to be acquainted with this life. Eh? It's a great chain, actually. What makes us different from them, whoever they may be, depending on where in the world we're working, or indeed many circumstances here in the States? That's built around what we call assumptions and values. And what I want to do very briefly, and we will not get through all of these, is look at some of the assumptions and some of the values that most North Americans have in common, remembering that when it comes to cultural issues, most of the time it's neither right or wrong, it's just different. So we're going to look at some of the things that make us distinct from other parts of the world and try to ask ourselves the question, why might this present a problem in the cross-cultural communication process? First off, and perhaps most importantly, we are individualistic. We talk about making up your own mind. Where I grew up in East Texas originally, we had a saying, every tub's got to sit on its own bottom. You'd have to be from Texas to get that one, really. Individual makes up his or her own mind to make a decision, and you must take responsibility for the decision that you make. 
And that sometimes presents us with a cross-cultural problem. is responsible for where we prefer to live, the way we raise our children, how we prepare the food we eat, what we value, how we talk to one another, and so on. In short, culture is responsible for how we live. But because culture and its pervasiveness can be such an unwieldy concept, it's useful to think of cultures in some basic categories. One way of thinking about culture involves two basic categories, individualism and collectivism. This conceptualization uses a continuum based on the primary value of the individual versus the primary value of the group. Neither value is any better than the other. In fact, both exist to some degree in all cultures. Briefly stated, people in individualistic cultures are concerned more with the needs, goals, and interests of the individual than those of the group. People in collectivistic cultures are more concerned with the group's needs, goals, and interests than those of the individual. These basic orientations affect or determine our values, goals, aspirations, and most importantly, how we relate to other people in our lives. People in individualistic cultures tend to emphasize self-actualization and individual initiative and achievement. They focus on an I identity. In individualistic cultures, people are supposed to look after themselves and their immediate families only. The United States and Australia are examples of individualistic cultures as they tend to emphasize individual rights, like freedom, independence, and individuality. They also emphasize equality, applying the same value standards universally. Individuals in individualistic cultures tend to have a self-other orientation toward relationships meaning that while the other is present, the self is most important. In We're not going to go through all of those. Bottom line is you have two basic categories, individualism and collectivism. Most of the world will deal more with the values and the assumptions belonging to the group as opposed to the individual and what the individual desires are. So when we work somewhere in the world and somebody comes along and we deal with them simply as an individual, folks, if you want to come on over, there's chairs over here, you won't bother us. If we deal with them strictly in terms of individual desires, and you perhaps recognize uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs there when he talked about self-actualization. But Maslow's hierarchy of needs will work quite well here in the United States, but it will not necessarily work well in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We are rational problem solvers. That is to say, all events, occurrences, ultimately can be explained. This leads to an emphasis upon training. It leads to an emphasis on the practical over the theory, developing a plan of action, and ultimately, if we can do all of that, control the future. We need to understand, though, what is logical to us may, in fact, not be logical to them. What is obvious to us may not be obvious to them. We talk about <coughs> bounded sets and fuzzy sets. <coughs> we are a people primarily of bounded sets. We don't like things that are fuzzy. Now, let me see if I can illustrate that. We are in a room here, and you see the baseboard along that room? Now, that's there for decoration, I will grant you. But it's also there for a purpose. Because that indicates to us that this is wall and this is floor. We put frames around pictures. We do those kinds of things that make a distinction between two objects or, in fact, two people. A lot of folks in the world deal more with fuzzy sets. Are you sick today? Well, yes and no. Are you a Christian? Well, yes and no. 
I remember one day Dr. Sam Camelation, who was in one of my classes at Asbury University, being from India, he held up his fist and he says, Now, for you in this class, this is point A. If it is point A, it cannot be point B because point A and point B are mutually exclusive. Now, for us in India, it's point A, but it's also point B. Now, you have to get into the Hindu mindset and the one world stuff and all of that to begin to understand that whole world of fuzzy sets. Medical people don't like to deal with fuzzy sets too much. In fact, the thing that perhaps frustrated them most about my illness with meningitis is they couldn't figure out where it was coming from or where it was going. (laughs) Therefore, they did not know exactly what medicine to give me. They figured that one out. What's a problem for us may not be a problem for them. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. Follow the logic. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Now, we smile at that, but see, that is based upon a linear uh, line of thinking that is really put there to sell you something. It is much like, uh, say, some of you may be familiar with the four spiritual laws in leading a person to Christ. That is a linear form of thinking, linear logic. Now, the problem is when we work with people that have circular thinking as opposed to that linear thinking. We are doers. Above all else, when we walk into the room, one of my first questions for you is, how are you doing? Is that what we really mean? Or should we be asking, how are you being? How are you today? But our emphasis upon doing comes forth right in the very language that we use. We live at a very fast pace, uh, and we our lives are filled with incessant activity. Somebody told me that when you retired, you were supposed to slow down. I've been retired for eight years now. If this is slow, I wonder what fast would happen to be. I'm in a hurry to get things done away. Rushing, rushing to life's no fun. All I really gotta do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. And I don't know why. <laughs> don't know why. I have to drive so fast, my car has nothing to prove. It's not you, but it'll be zero to sixty and five point two. We're in a hurry. We separate work and play. I remember one of the most frustrating things to a group that was on a short-term mission when Jan and I were in Columbia. They came to help in the construction of a church. About 9 o'clock in the morning, some folks who belonged to the church showed up with some refreshments. About 10 o'clock, someone else showed up with some refreshments. About 11 o'clock, someone else from the church showed up with some refreshments. Now, by this time, our North American workers were more than frustrated because you can't play and work at the same time. I had my wife go back in the elevator this morning in the motel where we were staying, and there was a sign on the board. Relax while you are working or work while you are relaxing 
or work at relaxing. Now that tells you an awful lot about us in that you work and you play and you do that at different times. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you work. Then toward the future. We value and we expect change. I suspect you've heard that word over the last few months. <laughs> the idea of change. We feel that we can always improve on the present. So we live in the future. The problem is many of the cultures with whom we work focused on the present or even on the past. Anything of value comes to us from the past. good example would probably be China at that point, valuing the past. We tend to be on the opposite end of the spectrum. Whatever is past is old, of little use, and we're looking to the future, and we're looking for some change in the process. change and be a difference, join whatever this was that was advertising. <laughs> We're very much performance oriented. We're very much results oriented. One of the frustrating things I think for most folks in the missionary picture across the years is to have to write home and not have something Shall I say positive to say? Very seldom can we write back to a supporting constituency and say for the last five years we have simply lived among whatever target audience we're speaking of, which may be quite significant. But after all, folks that are investing money in you want to know what results have you produced. That is very much a cultural issue for us. Good performance equals good self-image. That's the way we measure ourselves. We focus upon prestige earned as opposed to prestige ascribed to us. Simply because we have a certain family name or come from a certain village or whatever. Meaning that those folks would have more prestige, not for us. You earn your reputation. We focus upon very visible results. It's easy for me to say that your beliefs and thoughts influence your reality. So change them. It's easy for me to say that how you talk about yourself has a monumental impact on your results. So change the conversation. It's even easier for me to say that if you keep on doing what you've been doing, that you'll keep on getting what you've been getting. So... Change your behavior. And you know what? That's exactly what I'm going to tell you to do. Just change. I want you to look at your results right now. Repeat after me. Results are everything. Results are everything. Results are everything. 
If you behave your different lives, and by examining your results, I can see a clear picture of your commitment. Results are everything. We are highly competitive. In fact, that's our primary way of motivating people. Whether it be in the classroom or in the marketplace, or perhaps on the mission field. We sometimes set up the agenda such that there is competition thinking that that will motivate. Then we find ourselves perhaps in a culture where one would never win over one's friends. Because winning means that somebody loses. And you don't have winners and losers. Not in the sense of the way we compete. It's a whole new meaning do we start them young. <laughs> we are not limited by the natural world. We always tend to be willing at least to exploit the physical environment. So if we don't like where a mountain is, we move the mountain. If we don't like where a river is channeled, we simply change the channel of that river. We can use technology to do that if it accomplishes our purpose. The problem that we frequently run into is if we're going to dam up a river or change the course of it, what if the people with whom we're working see that river as being filled with a spirit world? So we're not needing dealing with just a physical environment. We're also dealing with a spiritual world there. Those are the kinds of things that seldom do we think about when we deal with the physical environment in which we're living. This is not a political statement. It may be, but it's not meant to be that. gets worse as it goes. (laughs) Bottom line there is 
we find ourselves frequently working with people who take a much different approach to the environment in which they live. We simply see the environment as the potential to be manipulated if it accomplishes our end. And yet when we work with some people in the world, that environment is in fact quite sacred to them. Now we value cooperation. Cooperation for us, though, is given for the sake of action. It does not necessarily mean that I agree with that person. It means that I might yield some personal principles or some personal goals simply that, so that I can cooperate to achieve a certain end, to, see, uh, to achieve a certain goal. Again, the problem becomes that many people of the world will not be able to bring about that kind of cooperation just to accomplish a certain goal if they see themselves as uh, perhaps being really an enemy with each other. What I'm saying here is if we, you and I, have a common goal, we may see everything else in the world differently, but we will work together to accomplish that particular goal. Don't expect many cultures of the world to be able to get over that hump. Would we expect them to cooperate? Perhaps they do, perhaps they don't. You have to look a little deeper into what they believe about this thing called cooperation. Now we prize fair play. Everything needs to be fair for us. One of the most frustrating things that many of us fail, uh, that many of us experience when we're overseas, is when you're standing in line and somebody walks in front of you, to the front of the line, simply because they have more status than you do. I remember when we first went to language uh, school in Costa Rica, and I was had gone to the uh, the aduana, to the customs to get our stuff out of the customs agent, the few boxes that we'd sent down. <clears throat> there was one lady there who had the final sale when you left. I got there early. I left late, and I watched people from Europe, and I watched people from Canada and every other place go before me. Now, all my papers were in order, but see, this particular lady wasn't real fond of North Americans. I waited. Was it fair? Not from my perspective. Doesn't matter from her perspective. She had the authority. She could do what she wanted to in that particular situation. We have Robert's Rules of Order. There's nothing any funnier then watching a faculty in an institution like where I taught pass something and then decide that that really wasn't what they wanted and try to figure out how to get out of it. Now, most people of the world say, okay, we passed it, we don't want it, forget it. No. We have a procedure to go through to undo what we just did, to make sure that it is fair to everyone. We'll stand up for our fair share and the fair share of others. We won't begin a fight. We will gladly finish it. And frequently, if not most of the time, we like the underdog.
we have a handicapped daughter, so that one was always one of my, I enjoyed the most. Concerning relationships, we tend to avoid social obligations. We value a gift that's given in anonymity. In other words, we prefer most of the time, unless it's a name going on a building or something, to remain anonymous in that gift giving. Broad associations, but we have limited commitment. I suspect if I ask any of you at this point in your lives even, how many different groups are you associated with? And probably there would be a number of them whether it's in sports or family or school or wherever. But we tend to be involved in those groups only to the extent that the purpose of that group serves us. Then we hit a culture where if you're involved with a particular group, you're totally involved with that group and not with many different groups because your commitment is made totally to that group as opposed to being spread out like we do. There is a thing called balanced reciprocity. It was a first studied in anthropology among the Kula, the Kula ring it is called. There was a set of seashells that were considered money or valuable. These seashells, as they traveled between islands in this circular form were passed along and no particular one held on to his or her seashells too long because that would be unacceptable in that culture. So as you travel, you traded and it kept the whole system moving and kept the system in what we would call balanced reciprocity. That goes back to the, the picture. goes back to the Vietnam War situation. We had, when uh, Jan and I were a part of a missionary internship training process, the fellow that was our mentor was uh, a missionary in Vietnam. And we were sitting and talking one day, and he said, You know, during the Vietnam conflict, we gave, and they said, Thank you. And we gave again, and they said, thank you. And we gave again, and they said, thank you. And we gave again, and they rose up against us. And we had a hard time figuring that one out. Except, as we understand that particular culture, every time that we gave, and they could not respond with something that they felt equal, it reduced them to being less than a man. Until it came a point where there was a certain reaction against us that we did not understand because there was no ability in reciprocity. Now, if you can imagine, and again, perhaps one of the hardest things for us, let's say you're dealing somewhere uh, in the medical world and you're overseas and somebody brings to you a handful of eggs or perhaps a chicken or anything else that you really might not want, a guinea pig or a few cents and they put it in your hand and you say, you know, I really don't want that. I really don't need that. I have plenty but realizing that by not accepting that, given the fact that you're giving so much to them, you reduce them perhaps to less than a person. We tend to emphasize equality. What time do we end here? Somebody tell me. Ten till ten. ten. We're just about there, right? Oh, 1020. Okay. We're fine. 
We tend to emphasize equality. Sending girls to school and giving them loans to buy cars is a great idea, in theory. But unfortunately, inequality often gets in the way. If you send a girl in Africa to school, for example, in Ghana, she will be raped or sexually assaulted. She may not be able to attend if she is menstruating or if she has a baby, which might happen if she is forced into a marriage. Girls can experience serious inequality in schools. Give a girl a cow, for example, in northern Malawi, and it becomes her father's or her husband's cow, because wives and girls cannot own property there. When her husband dies, she may be rid of it, and she will become the property of her husband's family, as will her cow. This results in more inequality. If a woman tries to run for local council or any public office, she will be considered a threat to the men in the community. Women who have dared to run for public office in Kenya have been abducted and assaulted. Some of them have been raped and murdered, and some of their children were murdered. Why? Because of inequalities in the law. To empower girls, it is necessary to challenge laws and practices that discriminate. Equality can be achieved by ensuring that all laws treat women as persons, not as property, and that all laws that are intended to protect women are enforced. These laws exist. There are international, regional, and in most cases domestic human rights provisions that guarantee the equality of girls and women. The equality effect is working to advance women's Equality is something that we value. Unfortunately, we work with a lot of cultures of the world where equality is not only not valued, it is not expected. Frequently, uh, as I have worked with short-term mission teams that uh, from medical mission teams, one of the Difficult things for a doctor or a dentist or a nurse in the process of seeing patients, it is not unusual to have a long line waiting. And someone who has been waiting two, three hours, a half a day, maybe come to a point and has to come back the next day and to see somebody else being brought generally are simply walking right to the front of the line and standing there to see you next. And I have watched your faces at that. Because that's not fair. These people have been waiting for a long time. But you see the person that has just been brought or taken the liberty to walk to the front of the line to see you. Maybe one of the elders in the village. Maybe one of the particular politicians of the area and they think and most of the other people seem to react accordingly that they have a right to move to the front of the line. So those are the kinds of equality issues that you may face. We expect confrontation. We like to get to the source of things We like to face the facts. We like to meet the problem head on. Now this little clip is very old and pales in comparison to what we've just experienced. You lose all of your standing from my perspective because you hired illegals in your home and you knew about it for a year. And the idea that you stand here before us and talk about that you're strong on immigration is on its face the height of hypocrisy. Like I say, that one is old. My point is this. For most cultures in the world to see that kind of confrontation, which we expect in what we call a debate, simply is, I don't even know what the word is, to most of the world. Don't be surprised if you go out into the rest of the world now And if the conversation ever comes back to it, go back to the particular political situation today and say, how can two people confront in public each other in such a way? Because you simply don't do that in that culture. 
We value confrontation. We think we can learn from confrontation. But that kind of public confrontation would never be expected. So when someone appears at your door on behalf of someone else who has some kind of problem with you, don't be surprised. You say, well, why didn't that person come and face me? Because they don't do that. They are likely to use an intermediary. We like to do it ourselves. We like to avoid the middleman, particularly when it comes to the economics. We prefer informality in our relationships. One of the things that I would do as a professor is if someone, a student, would come in and had something reasonably serious to talk about, I would automatically move out from behind my desk, sit in a chair right across from them, because that desk would represent a barrier between me and them that I wanted to remove. We tend to think that informality creates an openness in the conversation process. In fact, much of the world is just the opposite, though. If I do not understand my status in relation to your status, I don't know how to communicate with you. (laughs) Our daughter has autism, and one of the things that we would often do when I have to uh, deal with her is I would get her face and I'd say, Andrea, look at me. Now she's going to look away as much as she can. Andrea, look at me. Because based upon our culture and our values, if I have something important to say to you, look at me. Now, when you're talking with a person somewhere in the world and you're thinking at least look at me and they're standing there looking at the floor. Because making eye contact with you in that culture would mean that I am demeaning you. So those are the kinds of issues when it comes to more formal interaction versus informal interaction that we would face. We have what we call high context and low context communication. High context versus low context means that the context in which the message is delivered is important or not important. In other words, when one is communicating with another person, for most of us, being low context kind of people, what I want to know about is what are your words? What are your words saying? Not particularly where we are. Probably the only place that high context makes a difference is in a hospital. I faced that. We were in one situation in a hospital. They didn't have a waiting waiting room, and all of the medical conversation about me with my wife went on in the hallway until she stopped that. (laughs) Because that was a context in which it wasn't appropriate for medical people to be discussing a patient. High context versus low context. In other situations, the context in which the message is given is more important than the words spoken. One one skill that I think is really important for all people, everybody that comes to Thunderbird, if they don't leave Thunderbird, Learning this skill, I think they've missed something. Uh, any executive coming to Thunderbird for a corporate learning program that doesn't, at least is not aware of what the skill is, I think is missing something. And, and it's a very, very simple skill. And it's, in my opinion, the best contribution of social psychology to business. And it relates to language. And it relates to communication. And it's not learning another language. But it's being aware that some cultures, some languages, are what we refer to as low context. Uh, And the idea was coined by an anthropologist, an American anthropologist, Edward Hall, 
in his book written in the 50s called The Silent Language. And there he talked about languages and cultures that are low context are taught and learn to say what they mean. So if you want to know what an American really means or what a German means or what a Scandinavian means, and these are low context languages, the best way to figure it out, the best way to start is to look at what did they say because they are taught to say what they mean. But other languages, other cultures, Japanese, Chinese, Thai, Korean, to a lesser extent Arabic, to a lesser extent French, Portuguese, Italian, etc., Spanish, they're referred to as high context language. What that means is they use many words, but the meaning is more subtle, it's more nuanced, it's more circular. So if you want to know what a Chinese really means, don't look only at the words. You have to look behind the words. You have to we do the same thing in a certain sense uh, with uh, colors, ambiance. Uh, there are certain places we go in a restaurant and if it's a place where you're meant to sit and converse, uh, make a proposal for marriage or something like that, you probably don't go to a McDonald's or Burger King. There are other environments in which those words are more appropriate. It's just that with many cultures in the world, that context will make much more of a difference. A great deal is being said these days about guilt versus shame cultures. Uh, Warner Mischke has just come out with a book that probably is the most helpful of anything that I've seen. He goes back and even deals through Scripture and shows how the shame concept is probably more prevalent than the guilt complex is. For example, you start in Genesis. And Adam and Eve were what? Ashamed. Were they guilty? Yes. But what they felt was shame. Now what we're dealing with, and some of you I'm sure have more experience than I do, when we talk about the Muslim world, shame becomes extremely important. If we have done something that shames them, inevitably there will be some kind of retribution. Because you have to do something to reclaim your shame. One of the island situations that I was reading about said that a lady made some kind of statement about her in-laws and it was overheard by those in-laws. And she was so ashamed until she ran into the jungle. And there she spent the night in the cold and in the rain with all the mosquitoes, too ashamed to return to the village until her husband bought back her shame with a gift, thus allowing her to re-enter the family and re-enter the context. You'll need to do some more work on that guilt-shame issue. It's become extremely important these days. With regard to friendship, we're going to Use this as our last one because I want to give you time to talk to me. For us, we tend to apply friendship to everyone. It does not matter the depth and breadth of that friendship. We are friends. In many cultures of the world, though, friendship goes much deeper than just a superficial relationship. In our culture, friends tend not to impose upon one another. 
In fact, we have a saying that the best way to lose a friend is to impose upon them in some way. Uh, if you live a little bit longer, one of the things you learn, don't ask a friend to do some work on your home or build a home for you. So it's a good way to lose a friend. Because there will, friends can't say certain things to each other where if you're doing business, you're more free to do that. I'm going to close it down right there because I want to give you a chance. I've thrown all kinds of things at you this morning. You talk to me now. Questions? Observations? Yes, sir. Yeah, do you have the name of that? Look, see if I get it for you here. No, I'll get that. I should have it before me. It's brand new, yeah. We'll get that for you. Someone else, give me a reaction. If I haven't stirred up a good argument, then I've failed. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm not sure all in, in certain cultures where it would be appropriate or perhaps not appropriate to comment on like someone's child, someone's baby. I suppose that would even you have such a beautiful baby, and we do that all the time, even when they're ugly. <laughs> and it simply would not be the appropriate kind of statement to make. I, it could be uh, in, a, in a culture where names are known and you can use names as vehicles. I have been in certain cultures where, for example, uh, I would say I really like whatever the shawl or whatever you call it you're wearing, which is really in that culture would mean you're probably obligated to give it to me because I've asked for it. That is true. That's in a whole other section You're in my studies here. You're absolutely correct. When it comes to touch, uh, when I, stepping on my cord here, when I go into, my wife and I will be in Peru in a few days here, and you just get ready to be hugged. Because they do love to hug. To embrace the abrazo that you use in Latin America. I think young people are more accustomed to that than my age. Uh, and certainly with my parents. You just didn't do that. The use of touch and with whom it is appropriate to touch. One of the funniest things, I say that in a certain sense... We were in the Altiplano in Bolivia, and the Aymaida Indian ladies would come in, and it is extremely cold up there, and they would wear uh, so many layers of petticoats. You know, the I guess that's what you'd call them. The dress would stand out about to there because they were trying to keep warm. Now, you know, a, a, as a doctor, somehow you got to get underneath all that to fill her tummy. was interesting. Now, fortunately, we had one lady doctor with us. That was not a problem. But when is it a problem for a male physician to touch a female in a certain culture? And in what ways is it accepted? We don't think anything about it. Here, if a doctor is a doctor, then that kind of touch is expected. That won't necessarily be true. In many cultures of the world. The same is uh, true with uh, seating arrangements in a room. Now, it won't work with us here. But uh, in many cultures of the world, you go in, if you allow people to come in and sit where they want to, I can pretty well tell you who the most important people are in the room by where they sit. 
We do some of that in the arrangement of office spaces in a building. Normally, the president of an organization doesn't put his office right up front. It's somewhere at the back, probably on an upper floor. So the use of space, the use of talking distance is, is very similar to that. Stand up for me, young lady. I promise you I won't hurt you. You're going to have to come this way, I believe. You and I can stand and talk at this distance and be quite comfortable all day. But what if I moved in about right here and started talking to you? What would you do? I usually back up. You would probably back up. <laughs> now, one of the funniest scenes, you may sit down, thank you. One of the funniest scenes that I uh, remember was in language school. One of the fellows went out on the street, and the Costa Ricans are very uh, cordial about, I want to practice my Spanish. Well, he started conversing with this fellow on the street. And as he was conversing, the Costa Rican fellow would step in a little closer, and he would back up, step in a little closer. They backed up all the way around the corner <laughs> with that kind of interaction. Now, there are some cultures in the world where that talking distance is not only here. It is face-to-face, and we tend to get very comfortable. So here you are trying to speak with someone, whether it's sharing the gospel or something about medical uh, terminology or whatever, and they're thinking, if not saying, how in the world do you expect me to listen to you? I can't get close enough to you to listen. And you're saying, why in the world do they want to get so close? It has nothing to do with my communication. Yes, there, uh, there are some good books that will help you. Uh, I'll give you some. If I can pull up their names, I will do that. But now let me go to the heart of your question. And all mission boards need to close their ears at this point. Because I think ideally the first year that you're there, you don't really try to do any work. You just learn to live there. It is terribly frustrating when it takes you all day to go to the bank. And then you find out that most people don't go to the bank anyway. They send somebody else in their place. An intermediary kind of thing. I don't think that there is any substitute for spending time. Yes, if nothing else, and I will kind of sum up what I have to say uh, here, The assumptions and values that we have as North Americans are neither right nor wrong, but they are different. And realizing that there is probably going to be a significant level of difference in what I value and what they value, what I assume and what they assume is the first step. The second step is to not think that I'm right and they're wrong. Yes, it's called the global gospel. Now you know why I bring my wife along. The global, the global gospel, and it's M I S C H K E Warner Mischke. It's out in Phoenix. From Frontiers. It's an excellent book. Speak loud now, so they can hear you. I, uh, I will tell you, uh, most of what I know I've learned by making mistakes. This is my concern. In life and death situations, I worry that cultural sensitivity will come up the works and is life threatening. I assume that if I'm working overseas, they've brought their child in because the child is dying and that they want the child to live. Uh, 
certainly I think they bring the child to you because they want and need help. How you go about giving that help becomes the issue. Let me move it out of that context just a little bit. Let's say that my wife is ill and she comes to you. And I am there as her husband. Normally, when you talk, you might include both of us, but your words are primarily directed toward the patient. In many cultures of the world, you would have to direct your comments toward me as opposed to the patient. You're going to accomplish the same thing. And it's not that you're ignoring the patient. It's simply that there is an expected channel of communication that follows. The same thing would come in a certain sense when you pass out uh, drugs overseas. You hand a patient a package of drugs. Now, the first thing it says, you take one in the morning and one in the afternoon and one at, at night and so forth like that. And they don't have a watch and have no concept of a watch. So we find ourselves drawing little, you know, the sun coming up, the sun going down. And that will work fine. What we don't see is there's somebody standing in the background that thinks that they're equally ill. And because I receive the medicines doesn't mean that I'm going to take the medicines. It means that I'm going to share them with whoever else in my family is there. And as you well know, that can be quite dangerous. So just expecting that that might happen and addressing it. And I think you have to address it. You look, you don't go giving this to your wife because she feels bad or something like that because those are not appropriate things. Realizing that that may, in fact, happen. I'm pretty strong on justice. (laughs) At the same time, I know that certainly initially, for me to tackle that particular problem is probably not going to get me anywhere. If I earned my respect over time and am able to speak to some inequality, how women are treated, I think that I have a right and a privilege to speak to that. We were working among the Samburu in Kenya, and I I heard this, and I'm saying, am I really hearing this? After some of the equality conversation, was, one pastor stood up and said, and he was sincere, but if you don't beat your wife occasionally, she won't even know that you love her. <laughs> I had no comment at that point. You know, I'm saying, I don't really think so. But I looked at all of those pastors, and they were kind of giggling and laughing, and at the same time, not really contradicting what he was saying. Now, in my week that I was working with him, I probably did not have a right to stand up and say, you know, not, number one, it's not biblical. Number two, it's just plain wrong. But... I wasn't going to alienate what I had to say to them otherwise. I think what I'm saying in that process then is to be able to speak to some of those cultural issues, we have to earn that respect by being there a while. And they will give you that after time. Some of you may have had some experience in this where you just have to wait a while. Does that that make sense at all? Yes, you would do. You got the same issues. We put it into an overseas context verbally, but quite frankly, uh, my wife taught 27 years in public school. 
uh, public schools often have, uh, what do you call the teacher training times? Professional development. I have yet to convince a principal or superintendent to let me come talk to teachers about this whole cultural diversity issue. Because sitting in their classroom inevitably will be four or five different cultures. Not the least of which in my uh, context is you have one town where there's a, a university and a seminary and right next to it is a town where there are country folks and they come to the same school. <laughs> Quite different. My point being that kind of diversity you will face here in the States just as much as overseas. Absolutely. They are not individualistic. Right. If you ask an American about something, they're going to think, how does that affect me? Yeah. They never think that in India, the Hindu culture. They think right away, how does that affect my family? Because it really doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with my family. That's right. So if you yeah. can take them out of that, which they are, you, you, have, a, you have a one-up yeah. right there. You do have some... There's a whole lot there in the incarnation idea and model. Folks, thank you. Our time is up. I'll be glad to stick around and talk. Appreciate it.